Would you please open your Bibles once again to the book of Acts, chapter 12. Acts, chapter 12. We began considering this chapter last week. I would remind you that this takes place about uh, 14 years or so after the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. While he was still on earth, he told his disciples that they would be treated this way by the world. They will lay their hands on you, he said, and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my namesake. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Their only crime was following and preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is exactly, though, what the disciples met with. In the earlier days and years of the church, persecution was driven mainly by the religious leaders of the day. This time, here in chapter 12, it was by the governing authorities led by King Agrippa. He came, uh, King Herod Agrippa, he came from a long line of cruel tyrants. We're told in verse 1 that he stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. And then he went so far as to have one of the disciples or one of the apostles put to death by the sword. That was James, the brother of John. When Herod saw how this move pleased the Jews, he took even a further step and had Peter, the chief apostle, arrested, intending no doubt to do to him what he did to James. He needed to wait, though, until the Jewish Passover was complete with the day of unleavened bread. And so... He had Peter kept in prison. We don't know exactly how long, perhaps a few days, maybe even a week. But he had him put in prison in what we would call a maximum security prison. He wants to make sure nothing happens to his prize catch. No doubt he had heard what happened when Peter and John were arrested. And somehow they were out in the streets preaching the word of God. So we're told in verse 4 that Peter was being guarded by four squads of soldiers. And that's, I'm told, is four sets of four. Four men on each shift to watch. They had four soldiers guarding him at all times. Two were chained to him, and then the other two were at the gate. Now this kind of security and caution reminds me of the words of Pontius Pilate when Jesus was crucified and they came to him saying that we're afraid they're going to come and steal the body. He says, you have a guard. Make it as secure as you know how. Or when the Apostle Paul and Silas were thrown into the Philippian jail. It says there that uh, you have a guard. They said there uh, the jailer was commanded to keep them securely. 
And having such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Well, here, Peter's in jail, and this is no jail cell, jail cell in, in, in uh, Mayberry, where the key is hanging on the wall just outside the cell door. No, <laughs> you're not getting out of this place. And Peter was certainly not getting out until they brought him out. And when they brought him out, it would be to face his executioners. Verse 5 tells us this. It says, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to him or offered to God for him by the church. It tells us that while Peter was being locked up in prison, something else, something very important was going on. The church was praying. You can only imagine how helpless the church must have felt during that time. They, they had no recourse. They couldn't organize a protest and march before the palace. That would be only putting their own head on the chopping block. They not only couldn't do that, they, they, they couldn't uh, protest the king. They had absolutely no power or influence over this wicked king who had no intention whatsoever of letting Peter go and every intention of bringing him on the next day and putting him to death. But, it says, but. That's that blessed conjunction in Scripture, but. I remember being at a, at a conference one time and a man was contrasting what we were in Adam. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God who is rich in mercy. And he went on and on about this but. And he said, oh, what a big but it is. <laughs> and I started laughing because I don't think he meant to say that, but it is. It's an amazing thing here that this but changes everything. No, the world doesn't think it changes anything. Someone said, well, that's all they could do. And, and uh, they just pray because there's nothing else they can do. Might as well pray. Matthew Henry said, prayers and tears are the church's arms. Therewith she fights, not only against her enemies, but for her friends. And to these means they have recourse. Because prayer is praying to God. As we read in the opening psalm, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. They were crying out to the God of heaven. Charles Simeon said, The Scriptures inform us that God's counsel shall stand and that He will do all His pleasure. Let the combinations against Him be ever formidable. The ultimate issue of the contest is certain. Whatever circumstances, therefore, we may be in, we may safely commit our cause to Him with confidence and composure. We cannot conceive a finer illustration of this subject than that which is contained in the account of Peter's deliverance from prison. And that's what we're going to read now and look at this morning. Would you follow with me as I begin reading in verse 6? Now, I'll not read the whole thing. I'm going to divide it into parts. But we're going to look, first of all, at Peter's miraculous deliverance, beginning in verse 6. And when Herod was about to bring him out, 
That night, Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers. And the guards before the, gate, the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison, and he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off of his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him and did not know what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And so here is a beautiful narrative of his miraculous deliverance. The narrative is so clear and easy to follow that it really needs little comment. But I would like to make just a, a few observations regarding his miraculous deliverance. So the first thing I want to point out is that you have you notice Peter's composure. It says in verse 6 that that night he was sleeping, that Peter was sleeping. Uh, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers. Now that's composure if there ever was composure. How, though, could he be so composed? He's, on each side, he's chained to a Roman soldier, pitch black. They've turned out the lights by now or blown out the candles. But that night, now which night is that? That's the night before his execution. Uh, you hear them talk about executing a prisoner, and they're usually afforded a last meal before they're executed. Now, I'm not sure how anything could sound good or would be enjoyable knowing that it was your last meal. Uh, yet Peter here is sleeping and appears quite hard. Uh, the, the bright light of the angel didn't awaken him. In fact, it tells us that the angel had to strike him on the side to wake him up. <laughs> like the time... Jesus was with his disciples in the boat and this great storm arose and they were fearing for their lives. You imagine the boat being tossed about. And yet, where was Jesus? He was down below sleeping. Well, here Peter is sleeping. I think it tells us something of Peter's frame of mind. He was facing his own death. You can only have this kind of composure if you know what's going to happen when you die and you're not afraid of it. And he wasn't afraid of it because his sins were completely forgiven. He knew that when Jesus died on the cross, he died for his sins. Now, if you know that to live is Christ and to die is gain, you can put your head on your pillow at night and go to sleep. And he learned to trust the Lord no matter what that he found this composure as we sang in that hymn, Be still, my soul, the Lord is on your side. He was confident that Jesus Christ had not forsaken him. He had spent several days in this prison cell, several nights chained to these soldiers, and yet he knew that the Lord had not forsaken him. 
Now that's composure and that's trust. Trust in dark times and deep waters. Most of you have heard of Johnny Erickson. When she was only 17 years old, she dove into the Chesapeake Bay. She misjudged the depth of the water. And she had a fracture between her fourth and fifth cervical vertebrae. That left her completely paralyzed from the shoulders down. Bound to a wheelchair for the rest of her life. She's 73 years old now. And wonder of wonders, she's still giving glory to God for everything that's happened. I listened to something just the other day that just struck me. And I thought, this, this is composure. This is trust. She said, I hope that I can have my wheelchair up in heaven with me. I would walk up to my Savior and I would say, Lord Jesus, do you see that wheelchair there? Before you send it to hell, I want you to know something. I would say, Lord Jesus, I want to tell you something you already know. But give me the pleasure of praising you by saying this. Because the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. I am so grateful. That's trusting the Lord through difficult times. We sing in that hymn, When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of woe shall not thee overflow, for I will be with thee thy troubles to bless and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. I'm sure Peter couldn't figure out what was going on. He had no idea what the Lord was about to do. If he knew the angel was coming, I'm sure he'd have waited up for him. But he's fast asleep. When through the fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. Lord was working. Even though he couldn't figure it out, couldn't see it happening, the Lord was indeed working. But the second thing I want us to notice about this miraculous deliverance is the means which God used to deliver Peter. It tells us here that when he was sleeping uh, between these two soldiers, verse 7 says, Now behold, behold, look at this, an angel of the Lord stood by him and a light shone in the prison. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up saying, Arise quickly and his chains fell off his hands. So here's the means that God used to rescue Peter. It was a heavenly sent visitor. Now, in this instance, God used an angel, a supernatural being to deliver one of his children, a miraculous event, if ever there was one. This is one of the means which God can and has used to deliver his people from the hand of their enemy or from their distresses. He had delivered Peter and John this way earlier, you remember, when they were thrown into jail and an angel brought them out. This is actually the last time we hear of an angel appearing in the book of Acts until chapter 27. And that's when Paul is on that ship that's about to go under and, and uh, they're about to uh, jump overboard. And he says, an angel of the Lord 
came to me last night and said, everyone's going to be okay. Just everyone stay in the boat and everyone will be okay. But that's the last time we read about it. But now sometimes he delivers without the aid of an angel or a supernatural uh, occurrence. He did this with Paul and Silas. Now, that was a supernatural occurrence, but without the angel. Remember when they were thrown into the Philippian jail? And it says there was an earthquake and the chains fell off and the doors flew open. No angel. But God can do it whatever way He likes. Sometimes God uses ordinary means to deliver. I think of another time when Peter and John were arrested. And they were eventually released because of the level-headed thinking of a Pharisee named Gamaliel. He persuaded the others with common sense to let them go. This isn't good. We're taking a chance. If this is of God, we're fighting against God. If it's not, they'll just disappear like the rest of these false teachers and so forth. Just some ordinary common sense. And it persuaded the others and they let them go. So you see how God used another means. Now, God was in charge of that as much as He was in charge of this deliverance. Because we know, as the Bible teaches, that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord and He turns it whatsoever way He wills. He could have changed Herod's heart. He could have changed and persuaded the Jews to be more compassionate. But no, this time He uses an angel. This time, God delivered in a miraculous way by way of an angel, the angel of the Lord. Angels, the Bible said, are His angels, though. They are His ministers or His servants who attend to His desires and His commands. They are sent by Him to do His will. Now, my point is simply this. First of all, that God was delivering Peter though he did so by the hand of an angel. God was the one who sent the angel. The angels aren't all doing their own thing. You see sometimes movies and and shows that talk about angels, and they're kind of trying to work things out down here on their own sometimes. No, they do what God tells them to do. I don't know how God told the angel, but he said, go get Peter out of there. Go get him out now. And so he does. And secondly, God can use any means He wants. And whatever means He chooses, He should still receive all of the praise and all of the glory. But I want you to notice another miracle here in this passage, and that is the condition of the guards during this time. What were they doing? We heard about that wicked man in our own day who was caught with all kinds of pornography and child abuse and all kinds of things. And yet, he somehow is able to take his own life with cameras going out and guards falling asleep and all of this. And I don't know anybody who really believes all of that, but that's what they say happened. But here, they had to have fallen asleep. They just fell asleep or something. What were they doing? Didn't they hear anything? Didn't they hear the noise? Didn't they see the bright light as... Pitch dark, and now there's a bright light shining in the in the dungeon. Didn't they hear the chains fall off or the gates open? Were they all asleep? And if they were, that was bad news. Bad news for them. They weren't worried about getting fired. 
and having to look for a new job the next day. They wouldn't have to do anything the next day because they wouldn't be around the next day. They would be put to death. If you look down in verses 18 and 19, we'll get to that later. Uh, but he says, then soon, then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. They didn't know what happened. They didn't say, well, that angel took him. Didn't you see it? No, they didn't see anything. But when Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. That was a capital offense. You mess up on this job and you're done. Completely. I don't know how the Lord did it, but they didn't see a thing. They obviously had no idea what happened to Peter. So that's my first point that I want you to consider, and that's just the miraculous deliverance. We see how it happened. The angel says, get dressed. We're getting out of here. And they walked right out, and the doors flung open on their own accord. Like those automatic doors we have in our day, they didn't have in his day. They just flew open like that. And they walked out. But then I want you to notice, in the second place, answered prayer visits a prayer meeting in progress. <laughs> Let me say that again. Answered prayer visits a prayer meeting in progress. And that's what we find in verses 12 through 17. Would you follow with me as I read that? Oh, let's begin. We have to back up to verse uh, 11. Um, and when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. And when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. And they said to her, you are beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, it's his angel. Now Peter continuing, continued knocking, and when they opened the door he saw, and saw them, they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. So notice how Peter was considering all that had just taken place in verse 11. It says, when he had, when he had come to himself, that is, when he, he thought he was dreaming or having a vision, but now he's standing in the middle of the street and knows he didn't just, this is no dream, this is real. And he was actually delivered. But it says, and when he had come to himself, he said, now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectations of the Jewish people. So he's considering these things. It says, and when he had considered this, verse 12, he came to the house of Mary. So the angel has left him standing in the road by himself. Herod and the Jewish people were determined to put him to death. 
But we saw that God had other plans for Peter. And this teaches us a very simple but powerful lesson that man, man's plans can be thwarted, but God's can never be thwarted. God always accomplishes His will. We see that in the book of Daniel, the whole episode with King Nebuchadnezzar who was swelled with his pride and he was walking about his palace, his royal palace of Babylon. And he says, Is this not great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my, might, by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? And that's when God reduced him to a beast of the field took away his reasoning faculties. And he became like a beast of the field. And, and then God had humbled him so. It says in verse 34, at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and I praised and honored Him who lives forever. And this is what He said, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation and all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing and He does according to His will in the armies of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can restrain His hand or say, what have you done? God was accomplishing His will. He thwarted all of the plans and schemes of both Herod and the Jewish people. Remember, Herod was determined to kill him, and the Jewish people wanted him to kill him. And so they are left with their hopes and their dreams of his death gone, vanished like the wind. Well, there's Peter again, left standing in the middle of the road. Can you imagine? Where's he going to go? Well, he wants to find the others. Where would they be? Well, there's trouble. So where would they be? They'd be praying together. That's what they did. When there was trouble, and even when there wasn't trouble, but we know when there's trouble, they would come together and cry out to the Lord. Now, this place, the house of uh, Mary, the mother of John, <clears throat> this is probably where they often gathered for prayer. So that's why he probably knew this is where they'll be. <clears throat> so upon his arrival... We have this rather humorous account of the reaction of those inside. Peter knocks at the door and this girl named Rhoda comes to the door. We've not heard of her before. We won't hear of her again. Uh, but she recognizes Peter's voice and so she runs back to tell the others the good news. And she forgets to open the door or the gate and let him in. And it is quite humorous. And I've heard her mocked and made fun of or even referred to as a bit of a ditz. Well, notice that it says in verse 14 the reason why she did this. It was because of her gladness. She didn't open the gate. She recognized his voice. It's Peter. He's here. We're praying for him. And he's there. And so she just forgets to open the door. She's so overcome with joy and gladness that she rushes in to tell others the good news. And so Peter keeps knocking. Well, you remember this has happened with others. You remember uh, unbelief is so mixed with our faith. When, they go, when she goes to the others, they say, oh, you're out of your mind. You're, you're, you've lost your senses. Of course he's not here. He's in prison. 
But they're praying for him. And I'm sure they're praying that he'll get out of prison. But he's out of prison. He's right here. Come. And so they they have faith, but their faith is mixed with unbelief. Many make a lot of their unbelief. And certainly, certainly there was plenty of that mixed in with their faith. And there always is with all of us. No matter how much faith we have or think we have, we still have doubts. We still have unbelief mixed in. We believe, but Lord, help Thou my unbelief. You remember Martha at the tomb of her brother Lazarus. They had called for Jesus to come and, and their brother was sick, but Jesus waited and He had died. And so when Jesus shows up at the tomb of Lazarus, there's this uh, sorrow all around and grieving. But Martha's Faith was mixed with unbelief. If, if only you had been here. Well, they should have known enough about Jesus to know He didn't have to be there. Remember the centurion who came to Jesus because either his son or his servant, I can't remember which, was, was sick and dying and, and sends for his servant to come and, and come and lay your hands on him and heal him. And, uh, but says, no, you don't need to come. Just say the word and he'll be healed. Jesus didn't have to be in the presence to heal. He's the maker of heaven and earth. He can do whatever He wants, anytime He wants. But they were limiting His power to His presence. If you had only been here. So there was unbelief mixed with their faith. Well, these disciples were there praying together fervently and constantly, it says. There had to be the highest degree of desperation in their prayers. After all, their brother James had already been put to death. We knew, they knew exactly what Herod was capable of. He was predictable. Peter was next. And now the the days have come, and now the day has come for his execution. I'm sure they're crying out to the Lord as the psalmist did in Psalm 10. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? The wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. Oh, there are plenty of psalms like that. Crying out to the Lord, Lord, where are you? Where is God in a place like this, in a time like this? Is he deaf that he can't hear? Is he blind that he cannot see? Is his arm shortened that he cannot save? Where is God? They're crying out to Him with everything they have, with every ounce of faith they can muster. And now the knock at the door. (laughs) It's Peter. He's here. He's here. It's, It's really Him. I'm sure they believed all of that, to cry out to the Lord that God can do all things. And I'm sure they may have prayed that. Maybe they prayed the second psalm again. Remember, they did that back in chapter 4. Why do the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. And as they prayed on that night, take note of their threats, O Lord. I'm sure they cried out to the Lord. And here's Peter standing at the door. And it says they were astonished. First, they didn't believe it could be. And then when they saw Him, they were still astonished. They didn't have a cavalier faith. Oh, just ask and it will be there. 
I've already got it. So let's pretend that Peter's here. Why don't you put a plate on the table for Peter? He's going to be hungry when he gets here. No. The fact is that God often surprises us with His answers to prayer. Haven't you ever felt that way? We pray for a particular matter, a person, and then we hear that God answered it in the most remarkable way. Don't you ever feel ashamed that you doubted Him? Or that He answered such a weak prayer as we offered? You know, we think if we just get up enough fervor, He's got to answer it now. Now, the Bible says the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So many of our prayers just seem to be weak and anemic at times. So often... Our prayers are mixed with unbelief. It's not the power of prayer, though, that answers the prayer. It's not the power of prayer itself, I mean. But it's the almighty power of God who answers our prayers even when they are sometimes mixed with unbelief. The Lord remembers that we are but dust, the Bible says. He remembers that we are frail children of dust. Feeble is frail. And sometimes He answers our prayers when they're so weak. And yet He still answers them. Those of little faith cry out to the Lord and He hears. Those of great faith cry out to the Lord and He hears. I heard someone say that God's answer to our prayers are commensurate or in proportion with the faith we have. But aren't you glad that that's not always so? (laughs) It wasn't so with the disciples praying. They were praying and they didn't really believe it could be Peter. And yet God answered them. Which teaches them and taught them and teaches us that He is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Now, that doesn't mean, though, that God always gives us and grants us everything we ask for. And what might explain their unbelief, if that's really what it is, I'm not sure, but some measure of it, no doubt. I'm absolutely sure that they prayed fervently for the Apostle James. Don't you think? James? The same one that Herod put to death by the sword? They prayed for him. And yet God didn't deliver him in the way they were hoping or perhaps praying. But they knew God delivered him regardless. God delivered even James and that he was now in a far, far, far better place. The hymn we sang earlier Be still, my soul. I I love the way it says here about uh, being forever with the Lord. When disappointment, grief, and fear are gone, sorrow forgot, love's purest joys restored. That's where James was. (laughs) I wouldn't call that a failure on God's part to deliver him. That was just another way that God delivered him. He took him home to heaven. 
James was there in that upper room when Jesus said, I am going to prepare a place for you that where I am, you might be also. And now he's entered into that place to be with his Lord, the Lord whom he loved and served below. He'll love and serve above. And that's where James was. He was delivered. That's not a cop out. That's what the Bible teaches. There is a place called heaven and Jesus Christ is there. And he welcomes and he receives just as he did Stephen. When Stephen was crying out to the Lord, he saw him uh, standing at the right hand of God. There he is waiting and to welcome his servant into his kingdom. And so he did. God wants us to trust him, whatever the outcome. In Psalm 46 that we read for the call to worship, it goes on to say, there is a river whose stream shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. The nations raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered His voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. If God takes Him home to heaven or God delivers him out of jail. God is still on His throne and He is still with us and He's on our side and He works all things together for our good. This is the God they believed in. This is the God they were trusting in. This is the God they were fervently praying to. Let me just ask you as we close here in a moment, is this your God? You see, this doesn't apply to everyone who cries out to Him. God even talks about people crying out to Him. He says, I'm not going to listen. I'm not even going to listen. I held out my hands to you for so long and you said no. And your day of calamity comes and you cry out. I'm not going to listen. And there's going to be a multitude, a great multitude on the day of judgment that will say, Lord, Lord, did we do many wonderful things in Your name and so forth. And I will say to them, I never knew You. God is not obligated to hear our prayers, the prayers of anyone, but He will hear the prayers of His children. And who are His children? Those who put their faith and their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in order for God to be your God, He must deliver you as He did Peter, but from a very different kind of bondage. Charles Spurgeon has a a message on one of the verses here about Peter's deliverance. But he makes it an allegory, which I don't think is really the right way to look at the passage. Uh, I don't think this is intended to be an allegory, but it is a marvelous illustration of what God does when He saves a sinner. In fact, it's this passage here in chapter 12 of the book of Acts that Charles Wesley was inspired to write that hymn that we love, And Can It Be? that I should gain an interest in in the Savior's blood. And he has that one verse. You see this passage all in it. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. It's a great illustration. Has that happened to you where you've been delivered from the bondage of sin and the bondage of Satan and the destiny of hell 
And you've been brought into His kingdom. Not kicking and screaming, but lovingly and willingly and desiring to follow Him. That's when He's your God. When you put your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has delivered you as He delivered Peter, but from a spiritual bondage. And that's a worse bondage. Peter could have died an old man in that cell. And still his heart would have been free. If you die in your sins, you have no idea what freedom is. And all you'll face is the judgment of God and the condemnation of hell forever. But if you look to Christ, if you turn to Him, He promises He'll forgive all of your sins. He'll adopt you into His family. He has an inheritance waiting for you in heaven. And all He says is, Come. Come unto Me, all you are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for My yoke is easy and My burden is light. He bids you to come to Him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Then He is your God. And then you trusting Him throughout your life. And you'll go through deep times and deep waters. And you and I will have to cross that river one day. The river of death. But we can go as we look to Him. Fixing our eyes upon Christ. Believing on Him. Trusting in Him. Oh, may God help us to learn from Lessons like this in this book and throughout the Bible that our only hope is to put our trust, our faith completely in the Lord our God and in Jesus Christ, His Son. Jesus said this on the night in which He was betrayed. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll find He'll deliver you. He knows how to deliver the godly. And He knows how to keep the wicked under judgment till the day of judgment. And we'll look at that next week when we find out what happened. Uh, the aftermath, I'll call it, of the soldiers and of Herod. It's not a pretty picture. But is God, the God of the Bible, pouring out His judgment. And we'll see then, we don't want His judgment. We want His grace. And that's what He offers to us now. Let's pray.